Good to see you this morning. Uh, grateful that uh, you can be here. Um, I make mention of this. Uh, Rod, Teresa, it's good to see you back. Uh, they've been traveling, doing ministry, uh, doing supply work, and uh, filling the pulpits for pastors who are out and leading in some conferences, and we're grateful for them and uh, their ministry. Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, if you will, or copies of Scripture, uh, electronically or otherwise, if you would, turn to Ezra chapter 9. We're going to be giving attention to uh, chapters 9 and 10 uh, today. I was reminded as Adam was speaking, as we uh, about vigilant hope and those who are homeless, um, for those of us who travel around and move around in town, we are understanding more and more that there are uh, uh, fewer and fewer places to be developed, uh, meaning that woods land and even these small lots and parcels of land that we have seen still wooded over the course of the years, they are slowly leaving us uh, in some ways and quickly leaving us. Um, many of those places, you probably were not aware of, but many of those places here in town, uh, homeless people were living there in uh, tent communities and tent cities. And now that those places are being gone, uh, even the places that they had to put their tents and to live and to carry on life uh, is no longer there, and uh, uh, which makes our ministry with Vigilant Hope uh, and their need uh, even more present and prevalent, and just encourage you to give consideration to them and uh, and support uh, that ministry as we move along uh, in trying to carry out helping with the shower unit and providing uh, physical needs uh, through clothing, uh, hygiene items, and things of that nature. So I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, our text today is Ezra 9 and 10. Um, Next week, we'll conclude Ezra next week, uh, and then for, uh, for three weeks, we will be giving attention to Nehemiah. Um, many scholars believe that Ezra wrote uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, both of them historical books, and it's the reason we combine them together, because it deals with uh, a chapter of history in the course of Israel's life. Uh, just encourage you again. Uh, be, uh, be in prayer for Israel and all of those who are, are caught in the crossfire in the midst of the war that is going on there. Uh, it is serious. It will remain serious. Um, it's even more serious than we even know and hear about on the news. Uh, and we need to uh, be considerate of that. I was reminded even uh, as we were preparing for today that in all likelihood, um, descendants of the remnant with these people's names that we have read that went back during the first and second exile, uh, some of their descendants are still living there. Some of their descendants are still living there. 2,000 plus years later, 2,500 years later, uh, some of their descendants are living there in Israel trying to carry out life in a place where God brought them back to. And you've heard me say this, I don't have all the pieces of what will happen work out. Uh, I don't know that any of us do. And those who make a claim that they do, I, I think they're probably a bit hubris. Uh, but I will say that we cannot deny the significance of, of, of that land that God promised to Abraham 
We cannot deny even what we read today in our call to worship as we looked at how God singled out Zion. And that was the place that he singled out to be the capital city, the very mount upon which uh, Abraham took Isaac uh, to, uh, to offer sacrifice and obedience to God. Uh, all of those things are significant and they remain significant and they will remain significant. And so even in the course of that, we need to give consideration uh, to how we think about, how we pray for, uh, and, uh, and, and, and how we uh, encourage others to do the same. For the past two weeks, uh, we've given our attention to considering uh, the good hand of God. Uh, Adam mentioned it just a moment ago in our uh, confession. Uh, remember we said that Ezra, in his accounting of the events of his departure, uh, his journey and his early days in Jerusalem pointed to how the good hand of God was on him and was on the returning exiles. And we related this phrase, and this is important, so catch it now. We related this phrase to a common phrase that we use, that phrase being the providence of God. We'll often describe an event in our life or something that is taking place uh, and occurrence in our lives by saying, uh, and rightly so saying this, uh, by the providence of God, or it came about by the providence of God. What we're saying is, is that God in His wisdom, His goodness, and according to His plan, has brought whatever that is about. That's what we're saying, that God's providence, this has occurred. Uh, it may be an acceptance in a unique program at school that, is, that will be recognized uh, as very beneficial to um, uh, a job or preparing for the future. Uh, it may be in a promotion at work. It can be a, a loss of job. It can be a diagnosis of a disease. Uh, it can be the death of a family member or friend. Uh, it could be any of those things. But Ezra kept referring to the good hand of God was on him. And the good hand of God was on the people. Now, now I do want you to remember this and recall this. That Ezra acknowledged the hardships and the attacks that came upon that group of exiles as they were going back to Jerusalem. And not to rehearse everything that we looked at last week. But just remember, uh, he didn't ask for military accompaniment. Uh, because he had already pointed to the fact that he believed that God would protect them. But, but when we get to the close of chapter 8, we heard uh, that God had protected them. That meant that, that there were bandits, there were thieves, there were people that came against them that apart from God otherwise would have very probably ended that journey, so to speak, but God protected them and brought it about. The point that I'm trying to make here is, is that the good hand of God is on us even when in the immediate it does not seem like it's good. When we're dealing with hardship and broken relationships and loss of things and struggles and sickness and just in everyday challenges, the good hand of God is on us. And while it may not lead to some kind of an immediate point of success to where we can sit back and say, oh man, that was just great. It was in the providence of God. Though it may not do that, here's what it does. And this is what we've been singing about this morning. If you'll go back and look at each of the songs that we have sung at the end of it, it pointed to this. Here's what it does. 
The good hand of God always works to the redemption that he has planned, which for the life of the one who trusts in him means eternal salvation. That's what the good hand of God does for us. Before we read the text, uh, I think it'd be helpful for us to remember a couple of things. It'd be helpful for us to remember that the accounts of chapter 7 through 10, if you remember, we looked at chapters 1 through 6, now we're dealing at chapter 7 through 10, cover a period of approximately eight months. So from 7 to 10 is a period of about eight months. That's all. Uh, we know that because when we go back and read, we understand in chapter 7 uh, that these exiles began on the first day of the first month of Israel. Now, this doesn't correspond with our first month. Our first month is January, but it corresponded with the first month, which aligns just about with April. So they headed out. They started this journey on the first day of April of 458. They arrive in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, which if we calculated that from April, then that would be somewhere around the first day of August, give or take there, okay, of the same year. And then if we look ahead to chapter 10 and verse 9, and I would encourage you to do that for just a moment, chapter 10 and verse 9, then all the men of Judah and Benjamin, excuse me, verse, yeah, chapter 10, verse 9, then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. Uh, it was the ninth month on the 20th day. So um, it covers that period of about another four months from their arrival in August to about the 20th day of December. So we have a period there of about eight months. So all this is taking place in a relatively short period of time. Another point, uh, and this has just been as we have looked at it and you make a reference here, another point that might be helpful for us to consider is the fact that chapters 1 through 6 and 7 through 10 almost parallel. And here's how they parallel. Uh, in chapters 1 through 6, what do we hear coming out of chapter 1 of Ezra? Well, we hear that there is an exodus of sorts. We even mentioned that, that it kind of mirrored the exodus where they are leaving their, uh, the place where they have been exiled and they are making their way back to Jerusalem. And we know that they were going back to rebuild the temple. That first group, that first group of exiles, about 40,000, 42,000 of them, they're going back. So we have that. And then there's this whole list of the names of the families and we read through them. You probably were ready for me to get to the end of that list, but we read a whole list of the names of the families that were represented, that represented that 42,000 people that go back. And then the next part of that last through chapter six was dealing with the challenges that came to them from the outside, from those people who were already living there. Now, we've already seen in chapter 7, and we'll conclude it today in chapter 10, what do we have? We have another exodus. We have a second group of exiles that are coming back that equals about 8,000. We read the list of the names of the families, so they're important, the list of those who go back. Uh, and then today, we're going to look at the challenges that came from within the covenant group. Now, I want you to think about that in light of the challenges 
as, as, as a church, as believers, the challenges that we have. We have the challenges that are outside of us, the challenges that are presented to us by the world, and then we have those things that have come into the world that have been brought into the body of Christ, and then we have those challenges that exist and those disruptions and challenges that exist that are coming from within the body. And, and that is true uh, in the life of, of, of every church at some level. Uh, so it, with that kind of with the groundwork laid will kind of help us understand the significance of what we're looking at today. Let's begin reading there in chapter 9, verse 1. Um, we will read through 10, 8. It's a long text, but I want you to hear it. it it's an interesting read, so just follow along. After these things had been done, let's pause right there, after what things? After they had gotten back to Jerusalem, okay, they had arrived in Jerusalem, they sorted through all of the stuff that they had brought with them, they accounted for them, everybody was given responsibility for them, they had handed them off, and then they had gone to the temple, and they made sacrifices, and they worshiped, and I, while it doesn't say they did, I am sure that they gave thanks to God, because His good hand was on them. After these things had been done, Ezra said, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, the holy seed, has mixed itself with the peoples of the land, and in the faithlessness the hand of the officials and chief men uh, has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, I pulled the hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the end, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, and this is what, he, this is what Ezra prayed, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a, a little reviving in our slavery. For, for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, 
to grant us some reviving, to, to set up the house of our God, to, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And, and now, oh our God, what shall we say after this? We have forgotten your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it, it is a land impure with impurity of the peoples of the lands and their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons and, and, and neither take their daughters for your, for your sons and never seek the peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And, and after all of that has come upon us for our, for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor uh, any to escape. O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we're left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed, made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all of Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. And then Ezra withdrew before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehanan, the son of Elishahib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithful, faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days... By order of the officials and the elders, all of his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. As we look at our text today, uh, we see as we close chapter 8, some of the things that we mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, if you recall, when we were... Uh, Working through chapters 1 through 6, we saw the foundation of the temple laid, and we thought the next thing that would happen, is, man, they would start putting up stones, and the walls would go up, and the roof would be on, and they would be well on their way. And we understood as we read that that was not what happened, uh, but there was about an 18-year lapse between them laying the foundation 
and them beginning again to build the temple. Why? Because they had entered into a time of resistance. Uh, they had been afraid for their lives. Uh, they had been threatened. And even in some ways, some uh, political actions had taken place that had ceased the work. But we come here, and after we see that Ezra uh, and the people get back to Jerusalem, they have the gold, they have the silver, they have all that they need uh, to continue on with the work and to sacrifice, and they've made it back, and they've made it back without any kind of military uh, presence with them. And they say, the good hand of God is on us, and they get everything sorted and settled, and they go to the temple, and they worship, and the next thing that we would expect to hear is that all is well, all is well, but that is not what we hear. That's not what we hear. What did they do during this period of time? It was about a four-month period of time from the time that they got there and they worshiped to them being uh, in December, from August to December. What did they do? I, it, we don't hear we don't hear anything about it. It's just that we arrive there in chapter 8 and they have all of, this, all of this worship going on. And then when we get to chapter 9, which really spills into chapter 10, it's all one account. You're in December. What did they do for four months? Well, I, I, I don't know what they did. But let's speculate a little bit. And only imagine that they certainly needed to find a place to live. They had arrived in Jerusalem they didn't have houses. They didn't have places to live. Uh, many of them were going to be servants of the temple, but they had to get back and get their assignments and see how they were going to fit in to everything else that was going on in temple life. Uh, they had to get their families settled. They had to think about how they were going to feed their families. And we already know that it's December. So in that period of four months, they can't plant a crop and, and, then, and then get a harvest because we already know that the harvest season during that period of time was somewhere around August and September. That's when they would have their great harvest feast. So uh, they're, they're, they're trying to think about how they're going to carry on life and get everything settled. We know that Ezra had been commissioned by the king to survey the area and to see the conditions of, what, of how the people were, what was going on. We know that he was sent there to teach the law. So he's engaged for four months in teaching. It was four months of intense discipleship and then him also doing the administrative things that, that the king had assigned him to do. Now think about it. You've moved before. Some of us have moved and not moved to completely different cities. How long does it take us to get settled? Well, more than four months. Uh, some of us have moved at times and put stuff away and had boxes that we didn't have unpacked and pictures that we didn't have up on the wall and all of that in a period of six or eight months. So we know that in the course of this, they were busy just thinking through this what did they do for the four months? Well, they were carrying on with life and doing all of that. And it was at the end of that four-month period of time where things maybe had settled down. And what had happened, Ezra had been preaching the Word. He had been explaining the law. They had been reading it, and he had been helping them understand it. And in the course of that, when we get to chapter 9, after four months of discipleship, it is the light comes on, and they come, and they do what? They identify sin uh, that is in their presence. They identify sin that is in their presence. 
to help give us some context for this sin because we find out and we know what the sin is. The sin is, is they have intermarried with the people. And this isn't Ezra's group. This isn't, the, this isn't the second wave of exiles. He is talking about the first wave of exiles that have been there for 80 years. That over the course of that 80-year period, they had entered into marital relationships with the people of the, of the land. There were, there, was, there, was, there were these marriages that had taken place. And I want to say on the front end, and, and I'm not saying this, I'm just saying, this is not an issue of race. It is an issue of religion. That is what this is. The intermarriage was, an, was the intermarrying what had to do with religion. It didn't have to do with race. And we know that because if we look back at Deuteronomy chapter 7, look back and let's see what God had to say to Israel. Verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 7. This will give us context for us. This isn't a new thing. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, and, and Ezra references this when he is in his prayer, says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. Okay, this is, this is God's word coming to them. And when the Lord God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. And there's a reason for that. It sounds cruel, but there's a reason for that. Devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That's the issue. It's an issue of faith. It's an issue of religion. It's an issue of, of, of God and other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. So he, he gives them clear instructions on what to do. Sounds cruel in our sense. We say, okay, this is a God of love. The reason, the reason, and if you'll go back and look at in Ezra 9, in verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters. This was their sin. They had intermarried. They had taken some. So in other words, there was a sin that preceded all of this. When Israel went into, when, the, when, when, when God's covenant people went into the land, rather than doing what God said, they established covenants with them. They didn't destroy them. They didn't tear down their altars. And they did intermarry then. And they are back there again now in this second exodus, if you will, going into the land to establish the temple, to reestablish temple worship, to build the temple after it had been destroyed because of previous sin. And they're going back and they're entering back into the same pattern, the same thing. They are intermarrying. And what is at stake? Well, we see there in verse 2. Verse 2. 
so that the holy race has mixed itself, the holy seed, with the peoples of the land. What is at stake and what is at heart here is their lack of understanding of what God intended for them as a people, as a holy nation. And what takes place here? Ezra responds to what he hears and he confesses this sin. So if you're writing, taking notes, you can put that down. My heading is sin rightly confessed. There is this sin. This intermarriage has gone on with people who are not, in our terms, are not believers people who are unfaithful, people who have other gods, and God already knew what would happen if his people married people who were unbelievers and were not worshipers of God, that eventually, eventually, in time, because of the pressures of family, because of all the things that would go on in the course of trying to make things work in the context of a family, that eventually they would turn away from him and they would begin to serve the gods of the people that they married. That there would be some kind of a break in the course of that where concessions would have to be made. There would be a break in there where, where uh, uh, some, in some way to make this work in the course of the family uh, that, that concessions would have to be made, that, that there would have to be some kind of compromise some kind of compromise. And they already knew that it was true. They already knew that it was true. How do we know that? We know that they knew that it was true because they had seen it and they recognized what had happened with Solomon. They recognized what had happened with Solomon. Before we move farther in this text, I want us to go back and look at what Paul had to say about this in the context of the church and it'll help us see the relevance of what we are dealing with here today in the life, in our lives and in the life of the church. So if you will turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We often hear this passage of Scripture read. Oftentimes it is only applied to marriage. I don't think that I don't, I don't think that, that is, that's the only application. I do believe that marriage is a significant application for this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak uh, as to children, uh, widen your hearts also. And this is pointing back and it's pointing ahead with what he's getting ready to say. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, That's, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In other words, if you're yoked to an unbeliever and you enter into that and you enter into that relationship, you already know that you are being unequally yoked. What does that mean? Well, uh, you're, if, if you're a believer, uh, you are looking to Christ's atoning work. You're looking to God. You are worshiping Him. You're seeking Him. You're longing for Him. Uh, uh, his mission is your mission. 
Uh, His purpose is your purpose. Uh, His life and His Word is your life and your Word. That's that's what He's talking about. And then when you enter into that kind of relationship with an unbeliever, with someone who doesn't profess Christ, then you are unequally yoked. And, and And it ultimately will render the same results with the hardship, the difficulty, the strife, or will will end with a believer's compromise. And a believer's compromise. So here's here's what Paul goes on to say. What fellowship has light with darkness? The answer to that is none. He's already asked, uh, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The obvious answer is none. What accord has Christ uh, with Bilal? The obvious answer to that is, is none. None. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God. Kind of establish that in the context of our marriage relationships. And we're not going to get into what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about what that means ultimately if if there are people who are equally yoked and then one becomes a believer and one doesn't, First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, he deals with that. I'd encourage you to read that. But his point is, is that as unbelievers, we are not, as believers, we are not to marry unbelievers. That's his point, okay? You say that's kind of stringent, that's kind of hard. It's just a fact. That's what was happening here. Uh, and uh, it happened uh, with the first group that went back to Israel. Uh, it happened here with these exiles that are returning, uh, and we see the consequences and the struggles. But here's what happened with Ezra. Notice Ezra's response to all of this. Look at the seriousness with which he saw this sin. Look at his brokenness. I, I had... In, in studying through this text, I just wrote down his posture in confession. Look at what he does. He tears his clothes in verse 3. Pulls his hair out of his head and out of his beard. He is so distraught and overcome by the thoughts of the sin that has occurred among this group that left and came back 80 years earlier and had come back uh, as, a, as a sign of reformation, as a sign of purity, as a sign of reestablishing the things that had been lost because of the sins of the past and because of their suffering and struggling. And they have come back and now they have gone back down that path again. Notice that he falls on his knees. Look at what he says there in verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from fasting with my garments and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. 
Notice in verse 4 what happens with the people and with him. This is taking place for those who had heard, heard the word of God and understood the word of God. In verse 4, that we trembled at the words of the God of Israel. They trembled. I trembled. As I looked at God's word, understanding its instruction, and now recognizing this sin, I literally trembled before God. I trembled before God. Notice what he says. He says in verse in, 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 the first, in the first lines of his prayer, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. That's how distraught he is. That's what's going on as he recognizes his sin. What's the significance of this? Well, he sees the weight of sin. Notice in verse 4, faithlessness. These are the words that are used to characterize this. Faithlessness. Look at verse 6. He says, oh my God, I'm ashamed. I'm blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have done what? They have risen higher than our heads. In other words, we are, we are under sin to a degree that we will never get out of it. We are drowning, if you will, in our iniquities and sin. That's the weight of what's going on here. The truth is, that is the weight of all of our sins. That's the weight of all of our sins. It's over our heads. We have no ability to deal with it. And he said, and we have put ourselves there and our iniquities are there. Notice what else he says there in verse 6. He said, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Not just is it over our head and maybe I can get a lift off of the bottom of the pool and, and maybe catch a breath to save life. It is lifted up to the heavens. In other words, my sin, our sin has covered us and has extended all the way into the heavens. In other words, our sin has been brought into your presence. And it is clear, it's clear to him what this means. Uh, a passage of scripture that we would immediately identify with is to be reminded of Isaiah when he got into the presence of God. He says, I am undone. This is Ezra saying in, in regards to his sin, in regards to their sin. We are undone. Notice though he's just arrived, he did not seek to blame anyone else. Notice there in verse 6. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for whose iniquities? For our iniquities. Ezra wasn't pointing to them and saying, God, you need to get them. It's their sin. They're the ones that's sinning. No, Ezra understood that in the course of their sin, he was identifying with them, but he also knew this about himself. While he had not committed this specific sin, and this was what was on the table at the time, he was equally guilty of sin against God. Ezra takes his own sinful state and the sinful state of the people seriously. We've already looked at the weight of that. He understands that and he sees that. 
He confesses sin, rightly confessing sin. And knowing and understanding the weightiness of this sin, we will begin to see how they take the hard steps of repenting. I was thinking about this this past week. We can confess sin without taking the hard steps of repenting from it, but true confession is always accompanied with active steps toward turning from it. And, and I know, let me just say this, and we're going to see here in a moment where they do, do something just really hard and really abrupt, but I want you to hear this. I understand that repentance is an ongoing work. It is in my life and it is in yours. But there is a direction that is set to do what God says do. There's a direction set to say we want to please God. Third thing I want you to notice here is that and Ezra even, and even the people come to the state uh, that it is sin and turning away from God. Their sin was uh, an abandonment of God. There is faithlessness in this. We often talk about our sin and sinfulness using words like weakness and brokenness. Have we ever done that? I'm, I'm weak and I'm undone. I'm, I'm, a, broken, I'm a broken person. Notice what Ezra does. He doesn't speak about weakness and he doesn't speak about brokenness. He talks about iniquity. Iniquity that covers our head that we have brought on, that we have engaged in. Iniquity that goes up to the heavens. It's sin. He talks about them having brought into their relationship through this particular sin the abominations, the godlessness of all of those others around them as they intermarried. And they brought it into their race. They brought it into what was to be a race that would ultimately and did ultimately by God's grace would bring about the seed that God intended for the redemption of the restoration and the salvation of the nations. That's what they brought into this. They had abandoned God's plan of redemption and they had brought this sin in and it, it was, it, they never understood. They lost sight of, they forgot, they turned away from God's purpose for them. Maybe for them it was we're weak. Maybe for them it was they're broken. And we use those terms. But ultimately we're rebellious. That was the point. It wasn't about weakness. It wasn't about brokenness. It was about rebellion. Notice that Ezra says in verse 13... You have punished less than our iniquities deserved. Go back and look at that. You know what his point was? Is that we have been rebellious. We're going to talk about that phrase in just a moment in a different light. But he says, we have been rebellious. What do we normally do with brokenness? We normally try to fix it, don't we? If we calculate something to be broken, 
then we are working to try to fix it, to repair it, to make it whole again. What do we do in the case of things that are weak? We seek to try to strengthen them, don't we? Where where there are things that are weak, we want to get under it and we want to fortify it. If the foundation of the house is weak, then we are calling on specialists to come in and do what? To, to, To undergird it and to strengthen that part that is weak so that things can be held back up. And all of those things are right things, and it is not wrong to speak about our weakness Weakened state and our brokenness because we are broken and we are weak, but ultimately we are rebellious. And what do we do with the rebellious? What should God do with those who rebel against Him, the supreme authority of the universe? Well, we know what He should do. And you know what? Ezra knew what He should do. What did He say there in verse 13? Look at it. Chapter 9 and verse 13, he said, uh, he said, you have punished us less than our iniquities have deserved. In other words, we haven't gotten from you what our rebellion deserves. What does that rebellion deserve? It deserves destruction. Because what do we do with the rebellious? What does God ultimately call on to do with the rebellious in the course of his judgment? He pours his wrath out on it and them for destruction. That's what he does. He took him, Christ Jesus, who knew no sin and made him sin, and he became the propitiation and bore the wrath of God, the fullness of God's wrath. What? So that God holds his justice in order because rebellion deserved to be destroyed and to have his wrath poured out on him, and God did that to Jesus Christ. Christ. He did that to Christ. Exactly what sin and rebellion deserved. Exactly. And once Christ, the Son of God, the righteous one, and as Adam pointed to earlier in our confession, the one whose righteousness becomes ours, once he had borne the full wrath of God, God raised him and gave him life that we would have life. I think the point of this text is, is that we have to begin seeing the seriousness of our sin to ever experience the fullness of God's grace and his forgiveness. If we look at our sin and we only talk about it in terms of weakness and we only talk about it in terms of brokenness, we have made less of our sin than what it is. And if we make less of that sin than what it is, then we will never be able to embrace the muchness of what forgiveness really is. The vastness of His grace, we will never be able to do that. 
What does that mean for us today? I don't, I don't know where we're struggling. You will know where you're struggling. This was a public thing, and it was public, and the community had embraced it, and they only embraced it until God's Word had been preached and taught, and now it had come upon them, and they realized it for what it was. That's the beauty of God's Word. That can happen to us corporately, and it can also happen to us privately. If we only lament the effects of our sin and not the offense, we will never move in a Godward direction. If we only lament the effects and not the offense, we will never move in a Godward direction. And here's what is true, is that confession and repentance is a moving toward God, moving in a Godward direction. There's one last thing that I want us to pay attention to here in this text. I want you to notice how God's grace is recognized. Look at verses 8 and 9. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. He's coming out of the fact that, that the, the, the sin had not just started with them. It had started with their ancestors and it had continued with them and they were all sinful. They had been judged for it. They had been punished for it. They had been sent away into exile. Their temple had been destroyed. Their way of life had been done away with. They had been uprooted from their homes. Many of them had been killed. They were thinking back a hundred years ago when, when, their, when their relatives lay out Side the city of Jerusalem and inside the city of Jerusalem slaughtered. They may could have remembered back at a time when they heard about the fact that their great-grandmother had killed one of her children to eat that child to keep from starving while they were under siege in the city of Jerusalem. That's how serious this was. They may have remembered that. But then Ezra says, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown us by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place. That our God may brighten our eyes. In other words, awaken us, remove the darkness, and grant us a little reviving from our slavery. In other words, to smile on us for just a bit and we feel the freshness. We feel the freshness of God. And what do we hear when we get to John? See, Jesus, the light of the world, came in the midst of the darkness and did what? The darkness did not dispel him, but he gave us light, bright to see who he was and to see God himself because he is the image of the invisible God. Look in verse 13. We hear it again. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, 
seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given and has given us such a remnant as this. In other words, you did not destroy us, but by your grace granted us to live. You've heard us say this, but this is a perfect context for this. Not a one of us in here deserves to be alive today. We should have been completely destroyed because of our sinfulness. But God hasn't punished us in the way that we deserve to be punished. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, then you especially hear this, is that you don't deserve to live no matter who says you should. You don't have a right as it stands before God, but by His grace, He has sustained you and held you and He has kept you for today to hear the seriousness of this. And if you're here today and you've trusted Christ, relish in the grace that He has given us for life. Notice also, if you will, in verse 2 of chapter 10. And this is what Shechaniah said. Shechaniah is the one who came, came before Ezra and, and said, we've got to do something about this. We've sinned. We've got to do something about it. And he says this. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Is he being presumptuous? No. He's appealing to the grace of God and knowing that the way to move forward and the way to move Godward is to repent. That's what he's saying. Isn't that what Jesus said? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you turn Godward, you will perish. That's what Shechaniah is saying here. He said, we want to turn Godward. So what do they do? I don't think this passage of Scripture, mind you, from here on out, I do not believe that this is prescriptive. I don't believe that this passage of Scripture is prescriptive. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, they're not prescribing mass divorce to settle this issue. I think they're trying to, in the best way they understand and work through this, is to repent. I think it's descriptive. We'll look at it when we get to Nehemiah, but if you go to Nehemiah chapter 13, you'll find out that about 18 years later, he deals with the same thing. They're right back in the same mess again. And he doesn't call for mass divorce. In fact, he calls for the exact opposite. He says, just, just don't marry anymore. He's not taking a lighter approach. That's not the point. The point is, is that this is descriptive and how with the seriousness of this issue at this moment and them being under God's Word, they're making some very hard decisions. And repentance is hard. I know that. It is hard for me. It is hard for me and hard for you. I want us to conclude and look at verse 44 because I want you to see the seriousness of all this. They give a list of all of those who had sinned. And then the very last thing that we hear, and it's very abrupt, 
is all these had married foreign women. And some of the women had even born children. You see the hardness of all of this? Now, we wouldn't expect to find stuff like this in God's Word if what we were looking for was something that was going to sugarcoat everything. It helps us understand the severity and the difficulty and the challenges of what comes with sin. It's messy and it's hard, and yet we are called to navigate through that. How do you end on something like this? How do we end on something like this? I want you to know this text was not about Ezra. It wasn't about Ezra. It wasn't about what he did. He preached God's word and he was faithful. He was called on to try to execute the law and that is the reason Shechaniah said, this is, this is what we're going to do. You need to carry it out. If you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find out what they did. They gathered on December the 20th, I believe it was the 21st day, the 20th day of December. It was raining that day. They all gathered. It was raining. They were trembling before God, standing out in the pouring rain in Jerusalem. Thousands of them standing there in the rain. And they said, this is something that we've got to work through and we've got to do. And then over the course of the next month, they brought them in family by family and they dealt with each case individually until they had worked through the details of all the things that needed to be done. It was a serious time. I want to stress this and we're going to close. This, our sin is serious. That was the point. Our sin is serious. Ezra wasn't by himself in the course of this. Your sin is just as serious. Mine is just as serious. Deserves to be judged hard and fierce by God. And yet we come and we appeal to His grace in Christ Jesus who bore our sins died for them that we might have life and be forgiven. So how do we move Godward? We acknowledge the seriousness of our sin. We confess that sin and we repent and turn and move Godward by His grace. In Christ Jesus.